We sang the hymn earlier this evening, Holy, Holy, Holy. That hymn has become so much a part of the church that we tend to forget the profundity of those three words. Well, one word actually repeated three times. And that repetition, that threefold holy, 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 is actually taken from Isaiah chapter 6. And if you would turn there for just a moment, I want to begin by looking at this very familiar text, and yet a text which we dare not have become too familiar for us so that it breeds contempt. The text is Isaiah chapter 6, and it begins with these words, In the year of King Uzziah's death, the year was 739 B.C. Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. He was a relatively good king. In fact, the chronicler states this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 1 to 5, about the start of his reign. Chronicle writes, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He, that is Uzziah, did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now, as I said, Uzziah reigned 52 years, as the text said itself, which was a remarkable thing because it demonstrated God's hand of blessing for a king to reign that long with relative stability in the kingdom. And as the chronicler states, in those early years, Uzziah set his heart to seek the Lord. But it was near the end of his life where Uzziah took a turn for the worse. The chronicler in Second Chronicles 26 goes on to say this, but when He became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, set aside sanctified to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead And they turned him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord 
And Jotham, his son, was king, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Even Uzziah's death would have been unusual in that it would have been, it would have been memorialized in a different way. He was unclean. He had leprosy. What Uzziah did near the end of his life was to treat the Lord as unholy, to treat him as profane, to disregard the instructions that God had given as to the right worship of Yahweh. And as a result, the Lord smit him, gave him leprosy, this long, visible, long-term mark that marked him out as unclean. And so he died. In that year, 739 B.C., this young man named Isaiah, son of Amos, who, from what we can tell, was a man of some kind of standing, or at least came from a family of standing, because throughout the book of Isaiah, we find that he has access to the king's court. So he's, a, he's, he's somewhat of a somebody in the culture of Judah of the day. And this young man named Isaiah was distraught over the passing of Uzziah, undoubtedly distraught over what had happened to Uzziah in his, his departure from faithfulness, from treating the Lord as holy, and distraught at the state of the land in the passing of this king. And it's in that moment that he retreats to that same temple where Uzziah had been smitten with leprosy, that same place where Uzziah treated Yahweh is unholy, it's where Uzziah, or where Isaiah receives this vision of the thrice holy God. It was specifically at that moment that Isaiah was able to see what Uzziah could not, that the Lord is high and lifted up. And it was at that moment that Isaiah also saw what Uzziah did not, and That is that Isaiah responds to that infinite transcendence with those famous words, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. That was exactly what Isaiah needed in that moment to give him both fear and also to reveal to him infinite beauty. Because Isaiah did not flee from that temple. What is interesting to note that after his confession, the very next words in response to the Lord is Isaiah's response, here I am, send me. That's exactly what Isaiah needed, a vision of God's holiness, and it is exactly what we as Christians need in each of our lives, not just once, but a reminder of the holiness of God throughout our lives. R.C. Sproul, in that famous work of his called The Holiness of God, put it this way, he said, I am convinced that the question of the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God 
and of Christianity. So tonight, that's what we want to do. We want to grapple with the question of God's holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? So let's begin with that and define the term holiness. And it's important as we begin that we not define holiness as to how we might experience it. And there are two ways for that. First of all, two two reasons for that. First of all, we only know a portion of holiness experientially if we're in Christ. We only know a portion of what holiness means. We understand holiness in the sense of moral purity, and and that's true, but that's not all that, that holiness is. And so it's important that we not just base our definition of holiness on, on that thing that we call the pursuit of holiness, but even more than that, our holiness, whatever concept of holiness that we do have is mixed with all kinds of other ideas and imperfections and impurities. We dare not take our understanding of holiness and then impute it onto God or attribute it to God. No, it's God who must define for us what his holiness really means. As the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, holiness in angels and saints is but a quality, but in God it is his essence. Now that said, what does God say about his holiness? How would we define it in in one sentence? And I think we could define it this way. And I do believe that our study in scripture tonight will bear out the, 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 the correctness, the truthfulness of this definition. This is it. The holiness of God refers to his absolute transcendence and moral purity. The holiness of God, when we speak of God as holy, as being the holy one, we are referring to his absolute transcendence and his moral purity. And so notice in that definition, there are two elements to it. One primary, the other one consequential or secondary. The primary one is the, is the, is the transcendence of God, that he in his existence is utterly different from everything else that exists. That that is God's holiness. It's his transcendence, his distinction from everything else. But also as a secondary or corollary feature of that, God's holiness also speaks to his his moral perfection. That his character is completely in antithesis to anything that is morally polluted, even in the slightest sense. Let's now look at how, how we get that definition. And we really look to the Old Testament to help us here, as the Old Testament yields for us an abundance of information about the holiness of God. There's a Hebrew verb, kadash, that is translated as to be holy, kadash. And that verb most likely comes from the Hebrew verb, a very simple one, meaning to cut. And so you might say, well, how does the verb to cut relate to holiness? And and here is the connection. Whenever something is cut, there is a necessary separation that takes place. That which once was whole and together and united is now separate. 
that's the idea of holiness. And so when we talk about holiness in the Old Testament and in the New as well, but especially in the Old Testament, we talk about what it means that God is holy. It has the fundamental idea of separation. In fact, in the New Testament, and when we talk about Christian doctrine, the Christian doctrine of of sanctification, we're talking about that same idea. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification is, is the pursuit of holiness. Sanctification is growth in that part of God's character that we can, we can reflect, that moral purity part of that quality. And sanctification is the cutting ourselves off from the impurities of this world, the love of the world, the pride of life, etc., etc., And it is a consecration to God. That's what sanctification is. Even there, you have that basic idea of to cut. Now, when we take that idea of to cut and look more at the testimony, specifically of the Old Testament, we see this. That in the primary sense, when God speaks of his holiness, he is referring to that distinction, that separation, that that exists between him and everything else that exists. Everything that is called creation. His essence, what it means to be God, is utterly distinct from everything else that exists. As we read in Isaiah 6, verse 1, Isaiah saw Yahweh high and lifted up. That's who God is. And, and when we come across those words, it is referring primarily to his separation from creation. And so when you hear pastors or theologians speak of the great creator-creature distinction, this infinite chasm that exists between the two, it is really a reference to the holiness of God. Now this Reality immediately sets biblical truth, the biblical view, apart from the view of pantheism, for example. Pantheism is the view that God is essentially the same as the created world, the same as the universe, that the universe or nature in particular is one with God and they are equivalent. On Monday... When the rains were falling, there was a, a video clip that uh, Ellen DeGeneres released. She lives in that bougie area called Montecito, and it was flooding. And uh, she showed the water flowing behind her home and said this, We need to be nicer to Mother Nature because Mother Nature is not happy with us. Uh, so the idea is if you're nice, uh, it's going to stop raining. Uh, but if it stops raining, it, Mother Nature's not nice to us then either. So what's, what's going on here? You, you get the rain and she's not nice. So you don't get the rain and she's not nice. It's, it's all a lot of idiocy. But that is, expresses this idea that God is nature. Nature is God. They're one and the same. That's pantheism. And the attribute of God's holiness as he reveals himself to be holy indicates that nothing of the sort can be said. That we cannot speak of nature in any kind of way as 
as something other than what God created. It is not mother nature, it is God's creation, his footstool. It also, it also immediately negates a worldview called panentheism. Panentheism says that while God may not be totally equal with nature, nonetheless, God and nature are intermingled, kind of a yin-yang idea, and that God relies upon nature for part of his existence and nature upon God's existence. And while there may be areas that you can distinguish between the two, they're really intertwined. And that view of panentheism as well is utterly antithetical to the witness of Scripture. One pantheist said this, and this is what we hear so much today in the environmental movement. It is pantheistic or perhaps panentheistic, completely at odds with the Bible and its, and its witness to the character of God. But a certain pantheist by the name of Paul Harrison said this, when we say that the cosmos is divine, we mean it with just as much conviction and emotion as believers say that their God is God. But we are not making a metaphysical statement that is beyond proof or disproof. We are making an ethical statement that means no more and no less than this. We should relate to the universe in the same way as believers in God relate to God. That is, with humility, awe, reverence, celebration, and the search for deeper understanding. That is an utter rejection of the Bible's testimony of God. It is blasphemy. Instead, the Bible testifies that God is utterly distinct. He is holy. He relies not upon this creation. He depends not upon any element, any molecule of it. His existence is completely distinct, never changed by it. It is is never moved by it to some other form. God exists unto himself, and he exists in that essence as completely distinct from that which has been made. R.C. Sproul put it this way, when the Bible calls God holy. It means primarily that God is transcendent, transcendent, transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. Now that is his transcendence. Now let's look at his moral purity. When we speak of the holiness of God, not only do we speak of of that absolute transcendence, and that is certainly the primary sense of God's holiness, we also speak of it in the moral sense. In a secondary sense, the holiness of God describes his moral purity. And what do we mean by that? We mean this, that God is is absolutely, utterly untainted by any kind of blemish, morally or rationally, that would render him less than perfect. There's no taint. There's no hint. No drop of dye in that purity. No defect 
in God that would render his existence, his decrees, his words, his works, his ends, his means in any way as being even the littlest bit impure. God is separate from all that is corrupt. He is separate from all that we would call pollution. He is separate from all that would stain. Nothing of the sort marks him morally. In fact, it is impossible because God is holy. It is impossible for God to commit evil, nor can he act in any way to make others commit evil. God is not the author of evil, as James says, James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, this is important, when someone is going through the trials of life and feels this, this, this tendency to blaspheme God, to, to ascribe something unworthy of God to God or to engage in some kind of immorality, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In this sense, in this aspect of moral purity, when we speak of the duty we have as God's children, as those he has redeemed, as those he has given the, the ability to reflect his character, it is this aspect of holiness that we speak of when we speak of the pursuit of holiness when we speak of the ability to reflect God in our lives. It is his moral purity. It's not his his transcendence. That primary aspect of holiness is something none of us will ever possess. But it's the secondary aspect, the consequential one of separation from moral impurity. That is what we in our lives as the redeemed, as those who have been regenerated, as new creatures, It is that aspect that we speak of when we talk about holiness in our own lives. A.W. Pink, in his work on the attributes of God, describes this moral attribute, this moral aspect, as follows. As God's power is the opposite of the native weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is in complete contrast from the least defect of understanding or folly, So his holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. That is our God. Now where do we find this testimony in Scripture? Let's look now at the the biblical testimony. And if you have read Scripture for any amount of time, you know this is testimony that resounds from the very first pages of Scripture to the very end. It's there on every page. And I'm going to read a lot of verses to you this evening, not because I think that we need a multiplicity of verses to convince us one is enough, but I want you to see how emphasized this is on the pages of Scripture so that it impacts you. We start first with the testimony to God's transcendence, his, his absolute distinction from creation. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? 
This is a song of adoration to Yahweh because he is the one unlike anyone else. He is the one unlike anything else invented, created, whether that be by God himself or the imaginations of men. He is absolutely transcendent. 1 Samuel 2 verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Again, the emphasis is not so much on the moral purity of God, but on his transcendence, that he is utterly different. Psalm, 70, Psalm 47 verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Again, emphasis being not that it is morally pure, although it is. The emphasis being is that it is transcendent. It is over all. There is no throne above God. He rules over all. He is distinct from everything. Psalm 99 verses 1 to 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. We read that text from Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 4. But when you go then through the whole book of Isaiah, one of the most repeated terms over and over again is the term, the Holy One of Israel. This prophet who saw Yahweh high and lifted up, holy in the heaven, is the one who goes on to to dwell upon this theme of holiness, perhaps more than any other prophet. And 26 times throughout the book of Isaiah, you have this term, holy one, holy one, holy one, holy one. And in the vast majority of those cases, the emphasis is on God's distinction, his separateness, his transcendence. For example, Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom... Yahweh says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And the answer that arises out of that particular section of Isaiah where God puts himself on the dock and asks himself the questions, and and, and many of them being rhetorical in nature, the answer to be provided by this is that no one can be compared with him, and to even think of doing so is utter blasphemy. That is how holy and transcendent and separate God is. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, his name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. When we get into the New Testament, we find similar testimony in Mary's wonderful 
response to the annunciation of the angel, she says this, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has regarded the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Now sadly, in the Roman Catholic tradition, which on the one hand, makes so much use of this, this hymn, this Magnificat of Mary. Sadly, they profane God by making Mary too much like him. Revelation chapter 1, an example of the holiness of Christ. When John the apostle is there on that island of Patmos and Christ appears to him, And John sees this one standing in the middle of the lampstands, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of mighty waters. In his right hand came the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in strength. And when John sees him, he falls on his face like a dead man. I've seen an expression of holiness. Later on in Revelation 4 verse 8, We read of the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within. Day and night they do not cease to say, and here is the phrase that we read already from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He is the Almighty who was and is and is to come. But we also see testimony about God's moral purity and that too is abundant in Scripture. As I said, it's a, it is a consequential feature of God's transcendence that he is also separate from anything polluted. Leviticus eleven forty four to 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. The emphasis being there on that moral purity. Psalm 15, verses 1 to 2. The psalmist asks, O Yahweh, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And notice the moral answer to the question. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. We saw that emphasis on moral purity there in Isaiah 6 verse 5, as I already stated, that when Isaiah sees the transcendence of God, immediately his thought is drawn to the moral implications of that, and that's why he says, woe is me. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 5, we read this account when Jesus had been teaching from the boat and teaching the people and the, the disciples were trying to fish. They had caught nothing. 
And Jesus says to them in Luke 5 verse 4, Simon, put out into the deep water and let out your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in another boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet. And here were his words, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That time in the morning is not the time to catch fish. The time has passed. And Jesus says, go and catch fish. And those disciples, experts as they were at fishing, knew that that was not the time. And yet, the moments those nets began to break, and then they filled two boats with more fish than they had ever caught before. They, know, they knew that they were standing in the, pre, in the presence of a transcendent one who himself controlled the very direction of each and every one of those fish to pull them in from all ends of the Sea of Galilee to bring them there to that moment and into those nets. And as a consequence of that reality, it's Peter who says, away from me, you're holy and I'm not. Hebrews 12 verse 10 speaks also of the moral purity of God. The writer of Hebrews says, For they that his earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to us. But he, that is God, the transcendent one, disciplines us, that is his children, for our good so that we may what? Share in his holiness. It's not ours. It's never a case where we develop our own holiness. The issue is, is that we are made to reflect his holiness with greater and greater clarity. First Peter 1, 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then that very important proposition, that assertion that the apostle John makes in first John chapter one, verse five, This is the message we have heard from him, that is the Christ, and announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And there in that context, the light is referring to moral purity. But there's another aspect that we must look at when it comes to the testimony of Scripture as it relates to holiness, we see that Scripture testifies first and foremost that God is, is separate. He's a cut above, an infinite cut above everything else that has been made. That's the primary emphasis of holiness. But as a secondary or corollary feature of that is that in specific, he is a cut, an infinite cut away from any moral pollution. But there's another aspect of test, of scripture's testimony that we must consider, and it is this, that because God is holy, he must be intolerant of any effort to erase the distinction. And this is where we ought to take note. This is where it really gets serious and the rubber meets the road. For God to remain God 
He must be intolerant toward anything that would ever remove the cut and seek to join together in essence. The distinction, that infinite distinction must remain. Deuteronomy 4, 23 to 24, watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant the Lord your God of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves, what? A graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What's the implication from this? And it very much connects with some of the perfections we've studied already. And it is this, that any effort to depict God is immediately blasphemous because it seeks to depict God with something created. And he is distinct. And every effort to depict God with an image, with an idol, whether that be a physical image or whether that even be a mental image, kind of a, an icon or something that we have created in our mind's eye is falling short because God cannot be pictured by those things. He is infinite and he is transcendent above all those things. There's an interesting account in 2 Samuel And I remember that as a young boy. This one often confused me. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read of this case with Uzzah. That David was trying to move the Ark of the Covenant from Philistine possession, Philistine land, to the place where it would have its, its, its resting place on Mount Zion. Jerusalem. And they make the decision, which was against God's revealed law, to put the ark in an ox wagon and to have the wagon towed by those oxen. And this is where we pick up the narrative, Second Samuel 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Now, I always wondered, what was it? Isn't Uzzah trying to be helpful? He's trying to be a good deacon. He's trying to step up. But he thought his hand was cleaner than the ground onto which that Ark of the Covenant would fall. They were never to touch that Ark. That's why it had rings on the outside to gently insert poles so that human hands would not touch that which represented the holiness of God. And like Uzziah, who was struck with leprosy, Uzzah was struck with death. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. All those sins in one way or another seek to erase the divide and seek 
to somehow profane the holiness of God. And as a result, God responds in the most strongest ways. Psalm 11, 4 to 7. The Lord is holy in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now you don't hear these verses quoted in Congress today. And that is a testimony to the fact that there is no sense of the holiness of God in this generation. No, in Congress, they blaspheme our God by their silly use of Scripture, ignoring these things which should cause them to fall on their faces and bow before the God of the nations. Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. A very famous sermon is drawn out of the holiness of God, the theme of the holiness of God. That is the sermon, the most famous one perhaps ever preached on American soil, preached on July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut by Jonathan Edwards, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you haven't read that sermon, read it. It is politically incorrect today, even in much of evangelicalism. In fact, I remember hearing one time on the radio some kind of a religious talk show, Christian evangelical so-called talk show, where they were talking about all the bad psychological impact that this sermon had. Again, there is no understanding of holiness among many in the church today. Let me read just a portion of this sermon And I want you to consider how it strikes you. Whether this is something that you say, Amen. Or whether your heart is proud and lifted up like Uzziah. Jonathan Edwards stated this, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Now, if you hear those words and you want to get up and walk out, let me just say this, you do not understand the holiness of God. This is but a a comforting way to state it. Jonathan Edwards cannot even come up with the words to explain what's at stake. And so that leads to our final portion, what holiness demands from us. Let me give you six closing features. There's so many that could come out of this. First of all, we must extol the holiness of God. Indeed, what we just read of with With Jonathan Edwards' sermon 
should strike terror into every unbeliever. Indeed, there's only one way for an unbeliever to respond to to God's holiness, to keep with his own nature, and that is to hate it, to blaspheme it, to do everything he can to run from it and ignore it. But for the believer, to those against whom that arrow of justice is no longer aimed, for the believer... God's holiness is something that should attract our greatest praise. It is, we could say, the very definition of beauty. In fact, I would say this. If you are looking for one word that summarizes what true beauty is, it's God's holiness. And we see this come out in the the biblical writers over and over again. This is, this is the, 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 the attribute, the perfection of God that motivates them, that moves them to praise. First Chronicles 16, verse 10, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Psalm 99, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. Matthew 6 verse 9, Jesus teaches us to begin our prayers to the Father with these words. Our Father who who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holiness is to be at the forefront of our minds. It is to motivate us to, to praise and adoration. It is, as I said, the very definition of beauty so that when you really grow in your understanding of holiness as a believer. It doesn't, it doesn't force you away from it, though it causes great fear. Instead, it draws you, it compels you to want to get nearer. Again, this is what Jonathan Edwards said when, when he reflected upon his own study of God's holiness. He said this, God has appeared to me a glorious and lovely being chiefly on account of his holiness. The holiness of God has always appeared to me the most lovely of all his attributes. You should have noted this in in our singing of the hymn, Holy, 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 earlier this evening, that, that stanza that says this, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Every aspect of that, that, that stanza and that hymn are, are dedicated to the holiness of God is absolute transcendence and otherliness. And it is what brings the saints to sing early in the morning. Extol the holiness of God. If this doesn't get you motivated, then do the deep dive into scripture beyond what we've covered tonight and study the holiness of God and it will transform your life. Second, abhor the trivialization of God. Abhor the trivialization of God. The holiness of God should always give us pause before speaking of him or of using his name. And this has a lot even to do with our discussions and our study here. It should never be a case where we speak of God and his character and his essence of the Trinity or of his omniscience or of his immutability with any kind of superficiality. This is a serious topic, a topic of which you'll find no other more serious. And when you use his name, 
even the name, the title God or the title Lord or his personal name Yahweh or Jesus Christ, whenever you refer to them or the spirit, there should always be this sense of transcendence in your language. How dare you think that you can use his name in some kind of flippant way to curse at someone? That is completely at odds with who he is. And therefore, we must abhor this trivialization. Exodus 27, 20 verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, don't attribute to him anything that's false. Don't drag him down into the mundane, into the muck of this world. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name. Do not make any oath using my name that is untrue. So as to profane the name of God, I am the Lord. Isaiah 66 verse 2, this is the right response that a holy God looks for. The one that he looks to is this one, one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at his word. And every time we talk about theology, we're talking about his word. Number three, recognize the hideousness of your own sin. That's right, of your own sin. One of the best indications that you are growing in grace, you're growing in your understanding of who God is, is that you will become increasingly aware of your own sin and you will become increasingly repulsed by it. Don't, don't think that you're growing in, in Christ if you have a better ability to discern the sins of others. Perhaps. But that growth never takes place apart from a growing ability to discern your own sin and a growing revulsion at it in your own life. That is what will, will inspire in you humility. You'll not be so long, so, so much concerned about the sins of others. You'll look at your own sin, no matter what it is. And rather than always exalting and making much of the sin of others, you'll reverse the table and you'll always look at your own personal sin as far more serious than the sins of others. That's why Isaiah, when he was confronted with the transcendence of God, immediately says, woe is me, I am ruined. Or Simon Peter, when he understands better who Jesus is, falls at Jesus' feet in the dirt, in the mud there on the shore, and says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Thomas Watson said, is God so infinitely holy? Then see how unlike to God sin is. Sin is an unclean thing. It is hyperbolically evil. God has no mixture of evil in him. Sin has no mixture of good. It is the spirit and quintessence, quintessence of evil. It turns good into evil. It has deflowered the virgin soul, made red with guilt and black with filth. It is called the accursed thing. No wonder, therefore, that God hates sin, being so unlike to him, nay, so contrary to him. It strikes at his holiness. It does all it can to spite God. If sin could help it, God 
should no longer be God. Oh, that we would be we would be consumed by that reality that every time there's a temptation in front of us, that the understanding would be there that if I engage in that sin, that sin wants me to make God no longer God. That's what's at stake. And that's why we should detest and be repulsed by sin. Number four, marvel at the miracle of the incarnation. This is so amazing. This, this, is, this, in fact, really cannot be explained to any kind of full sense. We, we just know a part of this mystery. It is so amazing that the infinitely transcendent God has also revealed himself to be imminent, to be with us. He is not merely the Holy One. We talked of that a few minutes ago in Isaiah, that great prophet of the holiness of God. You hear that or see that title, read it over and over again. The Holy One, the Holy One, the Holy One, emphasizing transcendence. But understand this, that title, Holy One, is most often accompanied by a little prepositional phrase. The Holy One of Israel. Transcendent and yet identifying with his people. And it is that identification which earns him the name Emmanuel. God with us. It is that which John talks about in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Marvel at this mystery. This high and lofty one has manifest himself through his son in human flesh and has come to identify with us. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And that leads us to the fifth, rejoice for the achievement of the cross. Matthew Henry said this, no attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than God's holiness. That's rightfully so. But through the cross, that problem is dealt with. It is through the cross that the ineffably holy God has brought ruined sinners near to him. We are the ones who are at odds with him, infinitely separated by our sin. And God is the one who has solved the problem for us. Even though we were at enmity with him, children of wrath by nature, enemies of God, he is the one through his his eminence, his condescension, specifically through the cross of Jesus Christ, that he solved the problem. He's crossed the divide. We can live with him. And that is grace. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Finally, number five, for those who have been impacted by the cross, for those who have received the gift of eternal life, you've been made new. You've been made a new creature. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, you now have life with Christ. You are at peace with him. Now this pertains to you and only to you. This last one, reflect the holiness of God. As a result of the accomplishment of Emmanuel's finished cross work to your life, you now have the ability to reflect God's moral purity and to do so in a way that is pleasing to him. 1 Corinthians 1.30, of course, says that, that it is Christ who has now become our sanctification. That word there is the synonym for holiness. He is our holiness. We have Christ within us. We are in Christ, and therefore, having been made new creatures, having had the, 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 the depravity of Adam erased from us, now we are able to reflect back this holiness of God, to radiate from it. And that's, of course, what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is the good hope. This is the encouragement. This is the motivation. If you are in Christ, this is now possible. Before Christ, you never could do this. No amount of striving could ever reflect the holiness of God, no matter how many tithes you gave, no matter how many verses you memorized, no matter how much you gave to the the needy, none of it was holy. But now, because of what God has done, the possibility and the reality of a holy life are, are there for you. And no one can say, I can't grow anymore. No one can say, this is, this is not possible for me. If it's not possible, it means you're not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, this holiness is for you. And as Kevin DeYoung said, he said, to run hard after holiness is, is therefore another way of running hard after God. And, and running hard after God is another way of running after holiness. And this is not just some burden we take upon ourselves. But remember what I said, holiness is beauty. And now a beautiful life is ours for the enjoyment and having in Christ. The Holy One sent for us. Let's pray to him and ask that these things would be pressed deep within our lives. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word which so clearly testifies to who you are, that gives us what we need. And in this topic in particular, it brings us to fear. And yet we confess that the fear we have is not enough. We have tasted but just a little bit of what this holiness means. And so we ask that You would enlarge our vision. What Isaiah saw in the temple is what you've presented in your word. And so we pray that as our eyes look upon these pages, we would have that same vision of Isaiah or that same vision of of John on Patmos or that same understanding of Simon Peter And yet we pray that as we behold this holiness, we would see its beauty and we'd be attracted to it 
with a, an attraction that cannot be denied, that, that cannot be opposed, that, that there can be no obstacle that it cannot surmount. Give us that attraction to want to be like you and to glorify you in the beauty of that holiness. Indeed, Father, that is the greatest need that we have, and so we pray for it in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.